HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas, the new podcast from the anti-hunger organization Share Our Strength. Listen at strength.org slash passion. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Gerardo Gonzalez of Lalo. Um, for Lalo, can I, can, can I actually call you that? That is, You can your, call me that. Yeah. Who, who gave you that nickname? That was uh, given to me by my family. There's a lot of different uh, stories behind that, but it's mainly I had an uncle who was named Gerardo. And just was, to, it was just to differentiate. You, no, I mean, he was Lalo and I was Lalito, I guess, like little... Little Lalo, but yeah. it's all nicknames. Yeah. Family. Well, I mean, let's talk about that heritage. Um, your family, well, growing up in San Diego, California, your family were from Mexico, from Jalisco. Uh, yeah. How many miles away is that? What is that drive like? Well, okay, so that's, it's essentially, Mexico is a very big country, and it's got a lot of states, much like the United States of America. Um, it is more central Mexico on the Pacific side. Um, my family is all from there, but my parents uh, have been in the United States since they were young, very young. So um, it's kind of that American, Mexican-American heritage, but I still have ties to um, Jalisco um, or family in Jalisco, but I have also a lot of family in Tijuana, which is just over the border of San Diego. Did you make that drive often? I, I don't mean like in your early to mid-teens where you're not supposed to go over there and party, but, uh, well, we could talk about that, too, if you want. You know, it's kind of funny, because now this is, like, I'm getting a flood of all these different memories, but um, when I was growing up, we would go to Rosarito and Ensenada. Um, We would go there, like, during the summer. Um, Usually it was my family, like, my brother, my mom, and my dad, and then a bunch of cousins and aunts, and we would rent a beach house in Rosarito, um, in the summertime. And so we would go down there quite a bit. It's about 
anywhere from like a 40 minutes an hour and a half drive south of the border um and we used to do that every year from what i remember and recall but then later on when everybody would go to tijuana um for nightlife and all that kind of stuff i actually remember i was really into photography and i would go during the day to take photos black and white photos because um it had amazing light there's an amazing type of light that's uh in san diego and tijuana that's kind of like this saturating like sun bleached kind of light so everything is like really bright and colorful but also like kind of sun and salt faded a little bit um not to get too down memory lane but this is all like all of a sudden just coming to me yeah. like all these images no i mean it's wonderful ha- having seen your food for a while now at el rey and now lalo uh that palette and i mean it both you know uh of, of the roof of the mouth and and color um sound very similar to how you saw that light um and i always find it funny when a photographer goes and sees something in such a beautiful vista and then chooses black and white yeah because tell me about the colors of, you know, Tijuana and Jalisco, because your food is just so damn vibrant. Oh, thanks. I will uh, take that. You know, I've only been to Jalisco really once, and that was later on um, in my early 20s. And I went to uh, Puerto Vallarta in, in um, Guadalajara. But I would say more often than not, when I was um, really into photography, I would go down to Tijuana, and it's exactly like that. It's kind of funny that I gravitated more towards black and white, and I think it was probably a little bit cheaper to process and like a little bit more do-it-yourself. Um, but there was always kind of like this vibrancy, and I think the way it kind of translates to um, food is I would, especially when I was at El Rey, um, I kind of found this this style where I wanted the colors and the vibrancy of the image to kind of give you a preemptive um, idea of what the food was going to be like. So that vibrancy and flavor was translated first through image, through your through you seeing the food and seeing like these crazy pops of color and contrasting colors. And I think um, I had a very specific color palette at El Rey, which okay. tend to be like, bright neon pinks and greens for a while <laughs> everything was neon pink and yeah. green well i mean it, it was so wonderfully mixed media too and i don't mean that you're using you know uh paint and and sculpture but that you were using california cooking and kind of your mexican heritage and mashing those things up but then you also have such global travels under your belt as well so so the references were almost secondary to what it looked like at first that preemptive and then the flavor kind of traveled you outside of that. Thanks. No, I mean, it's all kind of for better or worse or just what it is. It's just everything is kind of an influence. And um, I think growing up, uh, remarkably, I was just like a very shy kid and kind of very insular. But it taught me to be kind of observant and, um, you know, just more inquisitive and kind of curious about things. And I think all of that has had influence on me over the years. And I really didn't get into cooking um, until later in life. Um, I did study photography and um, was in the hospitality industry my whole life as a way of just kind of supporting myself and started out more front of the house. And then really just, I think the same year that I was like, I'm 
not going to do photography anymore. I just like was like, I'm going to go to the back of the kitchen now kind of thing. And um, it wasn't until later that from all of that ex- world experiences and world travels that I really didn't do while I was cooking because when you're a cook, you usually don't make that much money. And because of that, you don't get to travel as much and you're working uh, way too much. But um, still those things kind of pop up. And I think food is just a means of like, of it's, it's obviously like sustenance and there's the base needs of like everybody has to eat, but it's also a way of telling a story or getting to know something culturally. I feel like it's the first kind of ambassador to telling people of like lineages or being interested in different cultural ideas. I mean, you took something so fascinating as, as the avocado toast, you know, uh, meme and then put a spin on it, use that as a canvas. And then we're able to explore something that was outside of not necessarily your comfort zone, but outside of what people would associate with you. Um, tell me about how you kind of transformed that, how you made that yours rather than just that cultural trend of avocado toasts. Yeah, I mean, that's always kind of funny. And it's like, at that moment, it was kind of right time, right place as far as like putting avocado out there. But like, also, it's the same thing with the kale salad, which is funny. Two things that were like what El Rey was primarily known for and are stricken from lalo there they are (laughs) you told me right before avocado free zone at lalo yeah it is it's on the menu we uh it's an avocado free safe space as i like to call (laughs) um but i think the idea was how you can interpret something into your own kind of thing and then also how to make it the best version of it possible so um something as simple basic is a kale salad or avocado toast can be transformed and like the way I just kind of approached it was like it was really just it became what it became piecemeal like I think it first started out where I had avocado del sur to start off with and it was just sliced avocado with smoked salt pickled red onion and chimichurri and to me that was uh, something that I never had in Southern California or in Baja no less but it was um, it captured all the flavors that I loved about Baja and Southern California. Um, and then visually it was just like very beautiful. And then we also had like Zatar bread, which was something that I was trying to combine. Um, we cooked it. It wasn't exactly traditional and it, by any means, and it wasn't like pita, but I called it pita, but it was essentially using masa harina. So, um, instant corn flour, incorporating it into the dough to make it its own kind of like little hybrid and then um one day i was like well what if we just put them on top of each other and then i made a very um fateful decision to put a poached egg and take a photo of it (laughs) fateful or just like um i made a decision i'll say that good or bad where uh, it had the eggs on it, the poached eggs, and then it just took off and it became what it became. I love that you said how to interpret something into your own thing. Because uh, moving down the street from El Rey, when you open up Lalo, yeah, I mean, I told you before the show, uh, 
I have lineage to that space. Yeah. Being a New York Jew and, and Chinatown, usually during Christmas, uh, that, that was a place I would go to. Um, and you'd have to sing a song if you wanted to get in underage. Uh-huh. <laughs> but Winnie's means a lot to a lot of people. Um, and I know you've kept the facade the same, but once you're inside, you've made it into your own thing. Why that space and what did you feel like you had to do to it to make it your own? It's tricky, and it's it's one of those things where a lot of factors kind of come into play, and it's really, I think I've learned a lot of lessons from that whole process of, like, the the importance and the value of um, people's connection to places. And I always felt that uh, a place is an entity in itself that... Uh, if you overwork it, then it's it's like a it's an energy force. It's a human. It's everything, and you have to kind of treat it with respect. Um, taking over that space was a really big uh, lesson. Um, the facade is the same, but truth be told, it's mainly we just um, ran out of money and <laughs> we couldn't get the permits to to change it. Not that you know that was necessarily something that we wanted to do, but um, I think. Making something your own and uh, realizing where you're at and location and stuff like that. Like, um, I don't know. It's really hard to say, actually. It's, it's something that was an interesting process to go through, I'll say. For the most part, there was a lot of people involved. There was a lot of meaning to that space. And in one sense, you don't want to necessarily... Um, um, you know, like, just rip it out and make it into something kind of crazy and brand new, but also in the same sense, like you don't want to exploit what it was before either. So I think just trying to find a balance of like contributing to that energy and like giving. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder how you ingratiate yourself to, even though it's only a few blocks away from where you were to, to, you know, a distinctly new area and demographic. Not that necessarily comes to your restaurant, but that breathes and lives within that yeah. block and that space. Well, and that's kind of what it was at first that I um, maybe even a little naively kind of walked into, which was um, there was just, I keep talking about energies, but there was like an energy of that specific corner um, where there's so many different factors and so much history that kind of went down in that corner. Um which I'm barely like starting to get a better grasp of, but there is a different demographic. There's a different neighborhood. That's all it is. It's a completely different neighborhood. There is one essence of it, which is um, a cultural neighborhood. There's another essence where it's like you have all of Civic Center and it's just like jury duty and municipal. Um, There's a lot of like bureaucratic stuff that's over there. So you have a lot of people, like actual New Yorkers, that kind of filter in through that. Um, on the other side, you do have a lot of tourists, so it's a lot of people that aren't from New York. And then you have all the neighborhoods that kind of surround it that are all within walking district distance that kind of um, all become this part of, like, downtown, which is, like, Lower East Side, Chinatown, Tribeca, Soho, Two Bridges, all these different neighborhoods. And um, it, it kind of felt like the center of it all. It is quite the epicenter of, of that melting pot. And on that, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about how you brought hippie Chicano <laughs> to that spot. 
You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back. Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas, the new podcast from the anti-hunger organization Share Our Strength, brings together your favorite chefs and amazing social innovators to discuss how food impacts almost every major issue you care about, your health, your environment, and your children's ability to learn. Uplifting stories from chefs like Michelin star winner Jose Andres. People want our respect. People don't want our dirty shoes and our old pens. People want us to show up and show them that they really matter to us. And Top Chef winner Brian Voltaggio. Hunger has many different faces. You can walk down the street every day and see children playing in the playground. They're hungry. They don't know where they're going to get their next meal. They don't know if they're going to have dinner. Can be heard at strength.org slash passion. You can help change the world by changing the way we think about food. Listen at strength.org slash passion. That's strength.org slash passion. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Gerardo Gonzalez, a.k.a. Lalo, also of Lalo, the epicenter of everything (laughs) in that little corner of Chinatown. Um, And I dropped the term hippie Chicano right before the break. Uh, Can you explain... I mean, because that's self-proclaimed. Can you explain what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, there was it. It's all kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but um, I have garnered a reputation of being somewhat hippie, or uh, of a certain. Um, I guess I just talked about energies <laughs> the past five minutes. I don't know how many times I, I said the word energy, um, so I guess it kind of falls into that. But um, the Chicano part is really. Um, what I grew up with and what I kind of understood about my culture, which wasn't just Mexican and wasn't American. It was kind of a a mix of all these different influences. And I think growing up on the border kind of had an influence on me as well, where it's just like you would see cultural ideas, whether it be, you know, like a hot dog that, you know, like crosses over back and forth and you have like the Mexican street hot dog or all the crazy uh, street food that comes to like San Diego because it's on the border, but it's just an exchange of different ideas that doesn't make it, I guess, the sum of its parts, but it becomes like its own kind of culture in itself. And I mean, we can go and start talking about menu off of that, but first I kind of want to talk about what you've done to that interior because with those ideals, you've still made a spot that looks and feels like a certain era and, and, I wonder why that was a choice of yours. There was a lot of talk about it, and it would be nice to say that this was the outcome of a grand vision that I had or we had at the very beginning, but truth be told, it was really a work in progress that was influenced by a lot of different things. Um, A lot of it to do with, you know, the contractors that we worked with or um, my partners, many partners who kind of have their own aesthetic or come from a different... um, dining background but it was also in conversations with uh two really dear friends of mine who own the store called uh coming soon in um the lower east side on orchard street and it's kind of a design homeware um 
crazy store where they just have a bunch of really beautifully curated stuff. And they, um, we met at El Rey. They were just regulars. I ended up uh, living with one of them, Fabiana, and the other is uh, Helena. And we just, they, it, I can't give them enough credit for like how much their taste and their style just like has really been an influence and also um, an inspiration. And I think we've always had this kind of relationship where we just bounce really crazy ideas and they're all like funny as hell to us. (laughs) And the whole point is like not taking it seriously, but taking it seriously or like looking beyond what is just uh, typical and actually like scratching the surface and making something as simple and bare as possible, but actually has a lot more meaning and value to it than you would expect. I mean, it feels very well thought out and curated when you when you see things like mango colored banquette and wood light fixtures and navy blue vinyl on the chairs and almond colored tables. I mean, the, these colors are of a specific painting palette too, or. Um, you had been telling me before the show uh, of, you know, directors in film that you like. I mean, you, you took this palette and imbued your space with what influences you. Well, I think, and that's what, you know, when people walk into the space, they always are like, wow, this is really you. And that's what I'm saying. Like, a lot of the things were just like, they kind of came, and I don't know if it was like divine intervention or like, you know, finding these chairs on Craigslist and coming up with these colors, which... Again, like I said, um, I can't say enough how much, like, coming soon and um, my two friends, like, have kind of helped in this, like, almost, um, I don't know, just, like, oracle-like sense of just, like, directing it into this way so that it came out in this kind of way. But I think it's because we have this visual connection that, for me, has always been influenced by, like, directors like Almodovar and very cinematic in the sense where it's, like, pops of color and um, how much that plays with everything and being contradictory in a lot of ways, too, because it's like, like you said, it's everything is so vibrant and, and bright. But we talk about how, like, all the photography that I did was in black and white. And usually when I dress, I dress like very plainly in like monotone <laughs> kind of colors to the point that, like, I became obsessed with, like, brown and just like monochromatic brown well see i was going to ask you because i only found this out later in life are you colorblind because i was the same way and then i found out i was colorblind oh wow yeah no no um because your food doesn't show that at all (laughs) i think that's what it where it's at but it's like i think what we're getting at is that there is you can have your your culinary influences but there's also the visual influences that kind of surround you and like what that all informs of your style so um, you can get as much influence from, like I said earlier, of like uh, going to like uh, Carrie James Marshall show at the Brewer or um, Almodovar and watching all these movies. But I think uh, having these conversations is actually what's kind of important. So, like the conversations I would have with Fabiana and Helena was essentially like, why is it that every time somebody opens a Latino kind of leaning restaurant or a Mexican restaurant, they always go for the same tropes or like just go a very like culturally lazy kind of way which is just the typical icons of like day of the dead or the virgin mary or i love frida Kahlo, but frida Kahlo or like those kind of things and i'm not saying that it's necessarily bad but 
<clears throat> I guess what I'm getting at is there's so many other artists and influence in Mexican culture that we can kind of, <coughs> sorry, go towards. Yeah, and there, there's also humor. Um, <coughs> because, I mean, talking about black and white, the, the choice to take white beans and turn them black to make them seem more like the black beans that are expected. I yeah. mean, is, is that art or is that poking fun at the art? I think it's a little bit of both, honestly, because that answered a lot of questions for me on a couple levels. One, I had something similar component-wise with the black beans in a dish at El Rey, and this was kind of a dip that I would make for myself. (coughs) Pardon me. Um, The other thing, it kind of answered the question of having, like, guacamole. (laughs) Which is a guacamole-free zoned yes, there as well. Yes, more avocados. <laughs> um, pardon me. Um, yeah, that I mean that one is very interesting because it's creating a negative canvas of turning white beans into black, and then it's this deep, rich black, and then using pops of color to kind of become even more vibrant by using black as a counterpoint. And I don't think it's, like, something that I sit up at night and, like, I want this dish to kind of, like, do this or do that. But it's really just, like, very free-flowing when it happens. So the opposite of a negative canvas is that a positive canvas. I don't know. But the stuffed squid with chorizo and hibiscus is is almost perfunctory in your face. True. Again, it's, like, um, these colors that kind of play off of one another again where it's like this deep red from the hibiscus but then this like off orange from the paprika and then you have the squid which is essentially a white counterbalance again um i think the other thing that you know people always talk about the colors but there's something about shapes that always are important to me as well um I never thought I was so tyrannical about specific cuts of how you cut an onion until I became, like, started to mess around with what, what's your the cut? plating. Well, I mean, the perfect pickled red onion is a flat square brunoise that absorbs. Like, this is the kind of logic that I have when I'm training cooks on how to, like, do this kind of thing. It's like, it's got to be this specific shape because... That's how it gets the most vibrant pink, and that's how it gets the most flavor where it's not too pungently onion-like, and it's also not too overbearing with the citrus, and it's like, it's a perfect balance, and it's this perfect shape, and um, the first time I kind of really got into this was when I was at a restaurant before this called Go Town, and I was doing the brunch menu and stuff like that, and I made a salsa with carrots, and it was like the rounds of the rainbow carrots, the colors plus the squares of the pickled red onion and it all kind of looked like um a clipped to me with like all the different metallic and neon colors and shapes and i think that oddly plays an interesting i don't but again it's not something that i like set out like i want to make this look like a specific painting it's more so like it's all very free form and how you um season something or um, just throw something on a plate 
where but, it's kind of natural, but you don't you don't have to psychoanalyze if you're referencing Klimp. Yeah, Klimp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you know what I mean. Though. It's yeah, just yeah. Like it's it's never like I'm like, how can I make this the most colorful thing? I honestly spend more of my time thinking about how I can make a dish 100% just monotone. <laughs> well, I feel like that happens with your moles. Uh, yeah, okay. You know, you, you have your brown mole and your brown goddess cucumber salad, and then you have the green mole with the Bulgarian feta. And I love that you've said in, in multiple interviews that, you know, mole is just putting everything in a blender and just burying it all together, almost homogenizing all those beautiful and varied elements into a singular very monotonic form yeah i guess to put it in a very simplistic way i i mean i as much as i say that there is a lot of intuitive thought and like really uh a subtlety out of like these big flavors that you're trying to achieve and like there's so many different cultural references to i guess how to make a mole or what a mole is and what it means and like how you make the dish but it is there are certain aspects where you just try to combine a lot of flavors that have a lot of competing kind of taste notes to it to create something that's like very nuanced and very simple or not you know what i mean like it's just very hard to like pin down exactly what it is but then you give them carnitas because they'd complain otherwise yeah i was kind of fine it's like here are some carnitas and here are some chicken. Yeah. Because um, I, I grew up, uh, there was a place that I really loved by my house, two places actually growing up, that had really amazing carnitas. And um, the way I played it is not traditional by any means. In fact, I think I've been accused of putting too much shit on top of it, <laughs> part of my language. But it's kind of trying to hit the flavor notes of like how I would eat it. And uh, the other thing is like, how you do eat something affects, like, I guess how it tastes. And um, it's gotten to the point where, like, we serve it with house-made flour tortillas, which isn't necessarily traditional of, like, the area that I grew up in. It was typically more corn tortillas. But um, I serve them on the side, and people naturally just make tacos out of them to the point when some people are asking for more tortillas on the side, they ask for more tacos on the <laughs> side, which is kind of funny to me. But I grew up in a very uh, specific type of household because every... Uh, w there's a joke that every Mexican household is a little bit different, but I grew up more of a pincher style of eating, which is you would tear the tortilla and you would pinch the meat using the tortilla as the vessel and the the vehicle in which delivering the meat from the plate to your mouth kind of thing. Um, so there's different styles. Like there's either making tacos and eating it like that. There's ripping the tortilla apart and eating it like that. There's just different kind of methods. And like, that's what I was trying to promote, but it ends up being more of the taco kind of vessel. And that's why you stuck it to them a little bit more by making a chilaquile taco. Yes. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Which, which is kind of funny, but also like, you do see, um, I had mentioned earlier before the show that um, my uh, mother called me one time and was like, what do you, like, that's ridiculous. Why are you serving tortillas inside of tortillas? And I was like, it's kind of funny, but she also did, like, there's a whole culture of, like, street food that, like, if you go to Mexico City, one of the big crazes was, like, a torta, which is essentially a sandwich filled with chilaquiles, which 
is kind of counterintuitive too. It's just like a starch sandwich, essentially. So then you are the opposite of counterintuitive. You are, or I'm just making it lighter, like a California version yeah. of that starch on starch. It's all about the energy. Yeah, there you <laughs> it's, go. yeah. it's all about Lalo. If you haven't been, please go um, and just kind of steep in it because it's the space, it's the food, but it's also what. Gerardo is doing there that makes it all its own. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. You've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Big thank you to passion stir. Check out more of their podcasts. Go to strength.org backslash passion, um, cookies, music always, and our wonderful engineers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.